Welcome to another episode of Latinos Who Thrive. I am your host, Victor Escalante. Today, we welcome special guest Liz Salazar Young, a licensed professional counselor with 36 years of experience in family and individual psychotherapy. Liz is a specialist to talk about the imposter syndrome and what you can do to overcome it. This is our second episode of a three-part series. Next week, we finish with a guest who has overcome the imposter syndrome. So let's get to it. Liz, welcome to Latinos Who Thrive. Victor, I am excited to be here with you today. I'm very excited to have you on as an expert in the imposter syndrome because this is going to be a three-part series that we started last week. And today, we turn to you as the expert in the subject. And then next week, we're going to follow it up with a woman that struggled with the imposter syndrome, and she was able to overcome it. So let's go ahead and get started uh, with your perspective on this. Tell us from a clinical perspective, you being a psychotherapist, what is the imposter syndrome? Well, basically, it's a psychological pattern where a person doubts their accomplishments and they have a pattern of persistent, often internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud or a phony. And they don't believe that their competence and their ability to have had had success was due to their hard work, but that they were just lucky. Uh, we suffer from a phenomena of feeling that we don't belong here because we're not Anglo, exactly. we're not blue-eyed, uh, we don't have the right last name. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And guess what? It can affect any any social status work background, degree, or expertise. It doesn't matter. I read the origins of who originated the imposter syndrome, and it turns out that it's a woman from uh, back east. I don't remember whether it was in Kentucky or Tennessee, but, you know, she was she came from a poor background. Uh, she ended up earning her Ph.D. in psychology, and even then she didn't think that she belonged in, uh, in academic uh, circles. And so she... And was she Latino? No, she was Anglo. Sorry. She did extensive oh, research, and what she discovered in teaming up with another psychologist was that they suffered from the same thing, and then they did a focus group, and then they discovered that everyone in the focus group suffered from imposter syndrome. So this is a very pervasive phenomena throughout our society, and, and I would go so far as to say that this is a worldwide phenomena. Most likely, most likely, yeah. In your experience, Liz, talk to us about what, as a psychotherapist, do you think that women suffer more from this condition? There was a study done in the 70s that indicated that it was more likely to happen to the, the ladies or women who are women of color. So, yes. Oh, and the other part of it was that they would be high achievers. Um, the other thing that you were saying earlier, though, was that they were saying that seven out of 10 adults have at least once in their life felt that they had that imposter syndrome. Wow. So this, yeah, board. this is very pervasive. Mm-hmm. Very. In your experience, what are the causes of this, this debilitating uh, personal limitation? What, uh, talk to us as a therapist. Put on your therapist hat. Tell us, what do you think is the cause? Well... Um, there's a couple of different things that I can think of right off the top of my head. It has to do with certain personality traits, I believe. Okay. And so this could come from especially people who have high expectations of themselves and that were also placed on them by their, their parents and stuff like that. So they tend to become the high achievers, right? And as high achievers, they also want to be people pleasers. So they're, that's another thing that they have going on with them. 
In addition to that, because they're trying so hard, they need to have excessive control. They want to be in control. They also tend to be more anxious and have like hypervigilance. And then last but not least, you know, just as an over umbrella view of it, is that they have a lot of self-talk and they're called uh, uh, cognitive distortions that keep them from really seeing the world through a certain lens. Instead, it's always clouded with these cognitive distortions. Yeah, that reminds me of the work of Virginia Satir and how she talked about the the hero of the family and some of the uh, remember some of the roles that people take on in a dysfunctional family and mm-hmm. how the hero tends to be the overachiever generally associated with the firstborn and how they yes. have unrealistic expectations put upon them and then mm-hmm. they take on those unrealistic expectations and own them and then they they don't really live a life of ease a life of of achievement because they're never good enough that's right you hit it right on the target and mm-hmm. so they have to work extra hard and they they burn out many times because again they feel uh, this deep hole inside that they can never fill yeah, and that they are failures, in fact. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the cognitive distortions, mm-hmm. you know, there we get into cognitive uh, behavioral therapy. And that's something that you do in helping uh, patients yes. overcome some of that inner narrative that people carry on with yes. them. So give us an example of some of those distortions that, that you help people with. Well, the big one, I think, has to do with the should statements, how we criticize ourselves about what we should or shouldn't do, must or mustn't do, you know, or what we have to do. These unrealistic expectations, you know. Um, So sometimes it has to, like, it's all or nothing thinking. There's no room for in the middle. It's all or nothing. Right. That's one. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's like, there's like a bunch of them, but um, I can rattle them off to you or, or I can keep on giving you more examples. Give us some, yeah, like. give us some more examples because a lot of people are going to identify with some of these distortions and realize that, hey, I suffer from this. Okay. Well, another one that's a biggie is the one that has to do with dwelling on the negatives and ignoring the positives. So that's a lot of people do that. Sometimes they'll also have like uh, overgeneralization in their thinking where they will view a negative event as a never ending pattern of defeat or something that is catastrophic. That's another one. They catastrophize a lot. Everything is at all worst. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. They they don't see this other side of it. And then um, I don't know if I mentioned this yet or not, but a lot of these people, I also refer to clients, is that they have a tendency to have a lot of uh, perfectionistic needs as part of that desire to have that being good enough and that positive self-worth and value that they feel that they don't have. So uh, they they tend to talk to themselves very negatively, the critic, the inner critic, and they talk to themselves about, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm such a jerk. How could I not have known that? You know, and they just put themselves down all the time. Um, in their in their own head, they're their worst enemies. Sure. They're their worst critics. Yeah, their worst critics. Absolutely. And I tell clients sometimes when I see this in them to check out who the voice is, because many times it's the mother's voice. This is not hating on on parents, uh, because again, they were trying to do the best they could with what they had, and sometimes they were victims themselves absolutely. of abusive parents. Yeah, and so uh, mm-hmm. so they made mistakes that that they ended up affecting their children 
but their children never realized that had they been born into a different family, they wouldn't have that cruel judge that lives inside of them. Inside of them, in their head, yeah. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. Because not only do they judge themselves, they also judge others, and they also judge situations in their life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And they, and you know what else is a very common thing for them? They worry a lot. They over. Uh, I, I already mentioned that they are, they can be hypervigilant, but it's like they're always on that fight or flight, ready to jump on stuff. You know. Yes, absolutely, and that is very debilitating because uh, think of the stress that that creates in in people. Yeah, and in their relationships. Absolutely, because their expectations of others is also affected. Very unrealistic. Yeah. To- okay. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of cases that you've treated that at the root of what they suffered was the imposter syndrome? Sure. Uh huh. I can think of a, of a Hispanic female that was married to an Anglo man. Okay. And well, during her, her, you know, her high school years and her middle school years, she was always a high achiever and did her best to, to, you know, excel. But at the same time, uh, was never really um, recognized by her father as having been good at what she did. Right. So, and if he, and if she didn't uh, do well, he had had a tendency to punish her and make her feel that she wasn't good enough or that she was inferior and, and wrong. Right. So on top of that, what happened to this Hispanic female was that when she was born in the years where if you spoke Spanish in class, you would be put under the desk and or, or else hit with a swatter yes. for speaking Spanish. So there was another thing that kicked in there where she felt that, oh, so it's not OK to be Hispanic and to speak Spanish. So what she did is she turned off speaking Spanish and even at home and she just would answer everything in English. And then as a result of that. The, with the father being so macho, he always um, made her feel like, okay, you're never going to amount to anything. You're just going to get married and have kids. So why should I support you to go to college? I'm not going to do it. And so what she did, because she had the ganas, is that she went ahead and worked 40 hours a week and she went to school taking a full load. Wow. What a cruel thing mm-hmm. to do uh, to your child. But like you said, Victor, when you stop and think about where it came from, the root cause of it, it's a little bit more under it's it's understandable, I guess you could say, you know, about why um, that particular father did the things that he did. So um, my intervention, in case you're curious sure. about what Tell I did, tell us what I, you did. I try, I tried to work with her on these cognitive distortions because she had a bunch of them, and of course, a lot of them came from what the way that the father would talk and and what she would hear in the conversations that he was having. And uh, she went ahead and and. And I worked with her on outdating these belief systems and the programs that, you know, she had been listening to forever by reprogramming her, by having her listen to positive affirmations like while she slept or or while she was driving or just at any time she was cleaning the house, whatever, so that she was getting these new messages filtered through to her subconscious mind so that she could start to recognize, hey, yeah, there's that's more real. That's more, you know, that's a better perspective than this negative, uh, you know, half empty glass that I've been living from all this time, you know, instead of half. Right. And that's where most of the problems lie is in the unconscious programming that is running constantly in the background. That's where the judge, the inner judge uh, is going to criticize you. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. She really uh, had a lot of anxiety because she was always striving to prove that she was good enough, you know? And and on top of that, because she felt like she was never getting there, she had what's called dysthymia, which is a very low-grade depression. It's not bad where she, you're crying all the time or anything like that. It's just you're not quite happy because you don't feel like, you know, you're good enough. Your self-worth is down. Your self-esteem is sure. down. Sure. Liz, uh, talk to us about some of the work. I know that you did this for years. Maybe you still do. Uh, to where you do brain scans. Uh, remember uh, in your office? Well, they weren't really brain scans. Um, what I was doing is I was uh, offering um, some biofeedback. Biofeedback, exactly. And, biofeedback. Uh, and the biofeedback, you know, at the time when I was doing it, was more so about measuring these physiological changes or what were taking place in your body. Okay. Right? So when the person initially would walk in, I would do the, you know, like the assessment and I would find out where they're at, a baseline. And then from there, I would teach them various techniques in order for them to learn how to take charge of their life again, to take control of these um, physiological changes that were in their body and reduce the level of anxiety and tension and stress that they had going on both physiologically and Emotionally. Right. So that's repatterning the brain, isn't it, to have a different response yes, to the stressors in the environment? Yes. And I heard you talk about the neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Yes. Oh. So neuroplasticity is a new field of science. And I got introduced to it through a researcher here in Houston that if listeners are interested in doing a deep dive into this, uh, there's a book that I'll put in the show notes. It's called Live Wired by this author that he has done extensive research on how the brain is constantly rewiring itself. But here's what I found fascinating is the amygdala will reprogram your mind and is constantly fighting you to reestablish the foundational programming because that's what gives you continuity. That's what gives you your identity. And so unless you have the expertise to go in and reprogram your earliest programming in such a way that is ecological and in such a way that it updates your new identity, it is only that way that the change is permanent. Otherwise, you can do some superficial uh, change work and the amygdala is going to rewire the brain with all that negative self-talk and emotions because, again, the positive function is to preserve your identity. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that they teach is that whenever you take something out, you want to put something back in. Exactly. Because the mind Mm -hmm. cannot deal with vacuums. The mind is always going to fill it with something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right on target. Yeah. So you want me to keep telling you a little bit more about this Tell us some more examples or or, uh, tell Uh us, uh, uh, do a deeper dive into this case, however you want to do it. Well, you were talking about the father and how, how that was. And and what he wound up doing is he, he placed excessive pressure on her and she never did receive the accolade for her success in academics or later on in her life and her career, right? And then she had a husband that she married and I already told you that he was an angle. And he, and he, although he wasn't, um, he didn't, he didn't put her down for succeeding in her own mind. She had something similar to what your doc, the doctor that was on the on your other one said, and that was that. Uh, he didn't necessarily praise her for her yes. accomplishments. You know, it wasn't that he wasn't saying she couldn't do it. 
he just didn't say, Hey, you keep going, baby. You keep doing it. You know, you're going to, you're going to succeed. I can see you there. He didn't do that. And then for herself, this was a sad part about what she shared with me. She shared that one year she made almost as much as he did. Uh-huh. Right? And, and she started taking more power and control in the relationships where she went out and she bought her, you know, the furniture that she wanted and, and decorated the way she wanted to. And she didn't even ask him for permission which was typical of what a Hispanic female would do if she would concur with her husband, right? And then he seemed very sad and quiet. He didn't say anything, but she realized that she was kind of like demasculating him by having more more, um, prestige, I guess you could call it. Because he, in his own right, had a very good job and everything. But it was still the idea that she, rough time, seeing herself as more successful than him. And somehow she, in her mind, she made it wrong to earn more money. So guess what? She sabotaged herself for the rest of her career, wow. never to make more money than he Wow. Yeah, to keep him happy, quote unquote, to keep him happy. But, you know, again, he didn't ever say anything. I mean, they deposited the money in the bank together. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't like if she had her own chicken neck on or whatever. It wasn't. It was just the the idea that she didn't want to demasculate him. Yeah, but the irony is like it's so interesting to see how this function, how this uh, imposter syndrome permeates our entire life, mm-hmm. our relationships, relationships, our our mm-hmm. career, our work, basically everything. It's like you can't even enjoy on vacation your achievements or success. I read one time the famous author uh, Stephen King of of uh, horror books. He, after he had his first major success with his first book, he couldn't even enjoy that because uh, he he figured that uh, his career was over. That now that he had had his, his big hit, that he would never be able to do it again. And so he stressed trying to come up with his next big book. So... And from there, I bet you anything, that's where the addictions of the, of the alcohol came into absolutely. place. Absolutely. Yeah. So you and I yeah, worked in the sense. criminal justice system, and we work with a lot of offenders with chemical dependency problems. Look at how we saw a lot of this uh, within that demographic. Oh, yeah. It was, so, it was very sad. And, you know, like even those, like, for example, like they'd say some of the, like the father or the mother or whatever, the people who are, you know, putting them down, even though they might be deceased. Here's a very interesting part. They continue to impose upon themselves their own discipline, their own punishment for the mistakes that they might make, reminding themselves yeah. that they're not perfect. The abuser lives you know? within. Yeah. The abuser lives the within. Saboteur, yeah. they call Absolutely. It, right? the saboteur. You are listening to Latinos Who Thrive with special guest Liz Salazar Young. We'll be right back. Are you looking to take your business to the next level? Look no further than Escalante Training and Consulting. With our expert trainers and personalized approach, we can help you reach your business goals and succeed in today's competitive market. Whether you're looking to enhance your team's skills, increase your market share, or simply build a strong brand, Escalante Training and Consulting has the resources and expertise to help you succeed. So why wait? Invest in your future success today and experience the power of Escalante Training and Consulting. Call today at 713-992-8279 or visit them on the web at victorescalante.com. You will be glad you did. Spread her wings and expand into other endeavors that she wanted to do. And that caused her to procrastinate to the point that somebody else took her idea and ran with it. And 
she never made the money that she could have made if she had gone ahead and just had that confidence in herself that she could have, you know, grown her business in a like in a different way, you know? Tell us this story has a good happy ending. <laughs> But the good news was helping her. I think it has a better I think it has a good ending because I mean she derived a lot of her satisfaction in her career from the work that she did and the help that she gave to those people that needed help right that was she was a, a service oriented career and she didn't really know how to play much so one of the things I used as an intervention with her is I said you know what why don't you start letting a little bit more of your fun side come on what kind of hobbies do you have and and she had a few you know like she had she liked gardening and she definitely read but but her reading wasn't really about fun stuff it was always stuff that had to do with improving herself right so what I had her do is I had her start doing some just simple little bead work like the kids do you know just little bead, making little bracelets and stuff and in doing that she found herself relaxing more And she allowed her creativity to flow instead of stunting it. And to the point where she got pretty good at it. And she even was, you know, doing some of those uh, craft fairs, you know, trying to sell her stuff and things like that. So I was happy for That's her. That's good. I'm ha happy that this story had a happier ending. <laughs> oh, the other intervention I had, Victor, in case you want to know. I also had her remind herself of all her achievements and over the years as the evidence that proved that she was, in fact, worthy. And merited the success. It didn't come by luck. She had persistence. She worked hard, you know, in school. Similar to uh, what the other doctor said, it was so interesting um, how it mirrored, you know. Uh, she would also record, you know, her lectures from school and she would also listen to them any chance she got, you know, just to sink it in a little bit deeper and, and just ha have that understanding. Yes. So she was always, like, she was always on trying to be better, better, better. Oh, and yeah. then you said something else that was really interesting that uh, it, it piggybacks on okay. the other one about the Catholic background, yes. okay? Look at this look at this part. So in the Catholic background that she had, it was just the beginning of her life, but that's all it counts, right? She had priests during the Mass back in the old days when she would go ahead and um, hear the priest impose the wrath of God for her sins, okay. right? And the and this only made the matters worse because it, it stifled up her growth and for me yes. in her life. Right? Yes. Okay. So my intervention on that one, I want to share. It's a okay. cool one. It, is that I drew her a little a, a little like a like a board, you know, like a little target board, and then and then I I would poke at it and say, okay, I, I told her this. I said, did you know that sinning, the word sin, means to miss the mark. And I said, so who do you know that can pick up a bow and arrow and the first time they shoot out at the at the target that they're going to hit a bullseye? Who do you know that can do that? And I went, no, nobody, nobody. And I said, exactly. So every time you're practicing, you're getting better and better and better at doing what you want to try and do. Ultimately, you know, hit the bullseye. Right. But it takes practice and that's part of growth. And that's okay. You're not making mistakes. You're in actuality, you're just growing. Right. That's all. And yeah, that did so it? That, that, cool that worked pretty good for her? I, yeah, that helped good. her. Yeah, that, that helped her to shift her perspective. Yeah. So listeners, remember, if somebody is ragging on you for being a bad person, consider the source. Consider who is telling you you're bad. Who is telling you you're incompetent? Because there's a lot of haters out there and they cannot see you succeed or be better than them. And so they have to put you down. There's even that the twisted phenomena of having joy at seeing you fail. And so if you go around telling other people 
of how things are going bad. Guess what? You're making them happy. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, and you know, um, I was going to tell you also the other thing that uh, was uh, back to the, the root mm-hmm. cause, an important thing to know, a uh, generational. It turns out that her father had, in fact, his own uh, imposing, I mean, it's the imposter syndrome where he, he masked it, though, by being a narcissist, right? And he never saw himself as good enough since what had happened to him is that he had dropped out in high school at the age of 17 to marry his impregnated girlfriend. So in digging deeper, because I always do a really deep family history, I found out that his mother and the maternal grandfather were also disciplined taskmasters with no praise, but disdain by you, this disdain for women being inferior to men, because she had a little bit of background in uh, Native American. Sure. And that's what we see in a lot of broken homes is this is generational trauma that is just passed on from one generation to the other. Yes. So I found that very sad. Can you talk about, give us an example of another case or do you want to move on? Sure. Sure. No, no I have another one that I okay. can share with you. Uh, this is a Hispanic male. Okay. Okay. So he was a first generation American. His mother was um, a resident alien. Dad was born in the States and he was the eldest of two siblings. So during his high school years, he was fun, loving, charismatic, you know, initially not much of a high achiever in academics. But again, shortly after graduation, he impregnates his girlfriend, but he doesn't believe that it's his child. So he takes off to the service. So when he's in the service, that's when he really excels and he becomes a high achiever as a good, you know, model serviceman. And he learns a trade, which, in fact, once he gets out, he uses to get a really good job. It was a starting job. Over the years, over years of like 30 years, he went from the bottom of the ladder all the way to the top where he was in the managerial positions. And he did, by the way, he did marry the woman because, in fact, in fact, the child was his. And and so he struggled with continuing to prove himself. And what was interesting about his case was that the woman that he married mirrored his father wow. in that his father was very negative and had felt like he hadn't reached his full potential out of fear because the father instilled a lot of fear in him about, oh, oh you know, why can you, why are you buying that big house? You know, you're not going to make it. How are you going to make those house payments? He didn't believe that his son could achieve. So again, not, no, no praise whatsoever. Right. So what he does is he adapts like a chameleon, I guess you might say, and he becomes more anglicized. And so he doesn't speak in fact, his Spanish was like really pocho. And the bottom line was that um, the interventions that I did with him were again, refuting those cognitive uh, distortions and then helping him with something that he became really bad at, which was obsessing about orderliness in himself and in others, bordering almost on uh, neuroses and then becoming so anxious that what he did to feed the anxiety was he ate. So he became a beast, right? And on top of that, another addiction we haven't talked about yet, and that is, by the way, the other half, I forgot about the other girl she had it too, was that they were promiscuous. They were promiscuous, okay? Now, I'd like to hear your take on what you think led them to become promiscuous. Without knowing the complete history, I would say that promiscuity is a form of adventure, and it's a form of a tremendous arousal. And there, what you're doing is you're activating the certain regions of the brain that are going to ameliorate the depression, the feelings of worthlessness. Because think about it, when you 
hook up with somebody and they like you or, or you're looking forward to being with them or they're looking forward to you being with them, there is a common bond. And so in that, in that relationship or in that dynamic, uh, it becomes a form of self-therapy. You and I know that there's some like 20, over 25 different addictions. And if this is an addictive pattern, then it starts out as being a uh, compulsion. Then it turns into an obsession. Then it turns into an addiction. And if the addiction is repeating, then that's a sign that the person is self-medicating. Yes. And, and that reminds me of a book that I read that was excellent. It was called Women, Sex, and Addiction. And in that book, um, I learned that a lot of women, and I can, I can imagine that this is very true for the Hispanic woman as well, they use their sexuality as a way of gaining power over men where they can seduce a man and feel that they are able to overcome that feeling of worthlessness or or not being good enough by causing a man to fall to his knees you know lusting after her or whatever it is but it's it's that or the tease of i can make you do this much stuff but just to the point that i'm comfortable with and then i back off so it's it's, it's a cool. power dynamic it's a totally abusive power i once had a client that he brought me his teenage daughter because they had been estranged all their life and she came back into his life found out that that he was overly critical and very controlling. And so when she came into her age of womanhood, she used that sexuality to try to control the father to reverse the tables by being promiscuous. And again, had the father not been so controlling and prepared her, she wouldn't have gone down this path. But she used her sexuality in a form of reverse control over her father. And when they both, yeah, when they both came to that realization, they were able to experience a healing and forgiveness of each other's mistakes that they made. Excellent. Excellent. Um, to finish up on this, this man. So uh, what wound up happening to him is, uh, unfortunately, he, he was accused of, um, he had a lot of emotional, uh, emotional intelligence. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about emotional intelligence, but and not so much, you know, like the high, high IQ or anything like that. But he was just a really good people person and just had a lot of good ideas. And he was very successful in that in that company that I was telling you about. And then eventually what happened is that he was accused of and wrongly accused, falsely accused of sexual harassment. And it was at the time when it wasn't acceptable and they fired him on the spot. Well, make a long story short the the person wound up excelling and coming back you know with a with a different uh, job in the same field but a different job and he made that company a multi-million dollar company so that when that company sold it was worth 10 million dollars and he became nationally recognized for his accomplishments in that field and yet there was always that underlying thing that he wasn't he wasn't quite good enough you know he never was able to totally shake that off and so that was a that was a very um difficult uh, thing that i had to work with him on yeah you would think that that just because you're able to become a very outstanding leader in whatever field you're in that's going to solve it but it doesn't does it no that's exactly right yeah so i kind of found that kind of sad um, the other thing that happened that in his case that was interesting was that, um, that I, and I, I kind of felt sorry for him because, you know, being Hispanic myself, he, um, 
he was like the token Mexican, despite the fact that he was second in command, you might say, or whatever, of the company. And he uh, he was never invited to the private yacht, you know, that the owner had or has, you know. And I was like, wow. And of course, he never received the compensation right. for it. Yeah. But in but it, I think part of the reason that he didn't uh, fight it more to like say, hey, I'm worth it. You know, I need to I need you to have, you know, give me more raises or whatever is because he settled thinking, yeah, I never thought I was going to make this much. So if I'm making this much, man, I'm, I'm making it right. And especially coming from what his father had instilled in his yes. mind. Absolutely. I had a case years ago. You remind me of this other case I had years ago that his this is an example of generational brokenness. He had a very successful engineering firm. And he did a lot of work. Uh, this is an El Paso case that he did a lot of maquila work in, in Juarez. He wanted his father to be happy for him and to be proud of him. But the only thing the father could say, well, you know, the economy could turn and you could be, you could lose your business. Okay. It's like the father always had some criticism about him. Okay. Because in mm -hmm. the father's mind, the only thing that was good was being in the army or being in the military, or working for the railroad. And his other son worked for the railroad because, again, very, very stable industries that you're never going to be out of a job. But here's the kicker. The father, as a little boy, he starved because his father, my client's grandfather, was going to seminary school, and he got sick. And what happened is he couldn't keep a job, and so... The family uh, went hungry many times. They were like four kids, and they would always skip out in the middle of the night on landlords. So there was a lot of shame, and there was a lot of scarcity, a lot of poverty. And so the father ended up getting into the military to help feed the family and to help, to help support the family. But get this, mm -hmm. the great grandfather of my client was the founding father of Harvard Business School. What? Yes. Wow. So it was that generation of his uh, grandfather that created the problem that led to all this broken dysfunction. So what I had to do with this client is I had to get, go back to his great grandfather to get the things that his father could never give to him the praise, the accolade, the, the mm -hmm. all the positive affirmations that he was missing and that his father wasn't capable of. Because again, right. in his mind map, in his map of the world, he was never going to be able to approve of his son and, and all his accomplishments. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But like you said, kind of sad. But you and I know that if a person works at it, their story ends up having a happier ending. Right. Yes. So Liz, I know that uh, no two cases are alike in your experience, but what seems to be the most effective therapy or treatment for imposter syndrome in your experience? I, I really believe that it has to do with that uh, reprogramming with the idea of changing the mindset. So where it's not if with, uh, filtered uh, through all these distorted uh, cognitions and changing the perspective of it and, and doing it in an environment that's safe and non-judgmental, allowing that person to recognize that it's okay to have strengths and weaknesses and that we're all here learning life lessons and we're just 
taking it one day at a time, you know, trying to do a little bit better each day, each day, each day, you know? So, um, yeah, I would have to say that's probably, and oh, and maybe the other thing would be that not counting so much on external, um, what do they call it? External validation, Mm -hmm. you know, but having it come more from within yourself where the self-esteem is built up, where you can really look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm okay. I'm good. Just the way I am. My, I'm not perfect. I might not be perfect, but I'm learning Every day I'm learning and experiencing new things. And each day I'm getting better and better at it from the lessons that I'm learning from the day before. And something as simple as saying that in front of a mirror works wonders, doesn't it? Yes. Those positive affirmations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you believe it and and you can see it, then you can create it. Words are are powerful creators. This this has been a very interesting conversation. And we got to have you back to talk about some more psychological issues. Because you really bring a lot of experience into the conversation. How long have you been a therapist? 36 years. That makes you an expert in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you think so. (laughs) Any final last words uh, for our listeners? Maybe for future generations, I would like to say one thing. Yeah. You know about breaking the pattern? Uh, we might not be able to go back and do do too much fixing about what happened to our, our parents' generation or grandparents' generation. But I can say that we definitely have control over how we do for our kids, right? So focus in on this. I'm, I'm sorry, I can see you Spanish. Focus in on the idea about going ahead and encouraging our children to do their best. Um, not so much by doing false praises per se, but just focusing on the outcome like asking them did you do your best and if they can say yeah i really did okay then you did your best and what can you do about it like let's say that it's a student that says you know i was striving for an a but i didn't get an a plus i didn't get a hundred i got 98 and so uh my advice to it would be okay so you got 98 so what can you do about it so that the next time that you take another test that you can get a little bit closer to your goal of 100 and then I leave it up to them to recognize well yeah I could have studied a little bit more or I could have done this or I could have done okay so then adjust the way that you're doing what you're doing so that you're able to accomplish what it is that you want right? yes absolutely and I think you 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 use that a lot too, I do uh, because we have a seven-year-old and 11-year-old and uh, they're very smart children but we always get them to take ownership of their Mm -hmm. grades and of course we reward them whenever they get straight A's or even if they get A's and Mm -hmm. B's it's their work Mm -hmm. we're not going to criticize them but we always encourage them that they could do better and so long as they did their best that's all that matters and they're going to get rewarded Mm -hmm. for whatever effort they put into it Mm -hmm. exactly well thank you Victor for having me this was a uh, a good experience for me as well you know my first time they were doing it or I, I had to be honest with you I hadn't I'm not a techie and I hadn't even heard a podcast before you can say that you uh, you did your first podcast <laughs> proudly that's right I'm proud of myself alright Liz well thank you for joining us and we'll be continuing with you at another time when you join us again here at Latinos Who Thrive excellent I, I thank you for your program. I think it's going to be a big success. Thank you. you.